From Rays of One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. This week is first things first. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. That expression of first things first is a piece of counsel often given to students of business techniques. It is the advice of practicality to those who aspire to worldly success. But accordingly to the Hermetic doctrine, as above, so below, that which works best in one level of life is often the best guide to what will work best on every other level. If a person is true to his highest priorities, he will generally find that his other needs are fulfilled naturally as well. This is true, certainly, as of the search for God. One of the greatest sayings of Jesus Christ was the simple sentence in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Paramahansa Yogananda gave his elder brother Ananta a wonderful lesson in this truth. It was Ananta who had captured him and brought him back from his flight to the Himalayas, described by Yogananda in Autobiography of a Yogi. In Yogananda's book, we read how Ananta later challenged him in the city of Agra to pit his divine faith against such a practical, worldly considerations as the need for earning, earning a living. Fearless before that challenge, the young aspirant agreed to go by train without any money to the nearby town of Brindaban, not to miss a single meal in Brindaban and to find his way back to Agra without begging and without in any other way asking for help. In one of the most thrilling chapters in the book, Yogananda fulfilled all the conditions of the test. Yogananda continued the account. As the tale was unfolded, my brother turned sober, then solemn. The law of the mana supply reaches into subter realms than I had supposed. Ananta spoke with a spiritual enthusiasm never before noticeable. I understand for the first time <clears throat> your indifference to the vaults and vulgar accumulations of the world. Late as it was, my brother insisted that he receive diksha, initiation into Kriya Yoga. As the Bhagavad Gita puts it in the ninth chapter, those who worship lesser gods go to their gods, but those who worship me come to me. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. I'd like to welcome you all to Sunday service here at the Temple of Light at Ananda Village. My name is Atman, this is Bhakti Marg. We serve here at the village, and it's our joy to share with you this Sunday service. So I'll start with a reading from Yogananda's Book of Prayer Demands. 
whispers from eternity. This is prayer to man to reach the one highway of realization. Flower of all fragrances, awaken our senses. Lead us not through forests of uncertainty, where many bypaths lead off in diverse directions, twisting and turning. Those that were hopefully pass endless obstacles to thy city of light. Take us out quickly into that inner highway of realization, the spine, which leads directly to thee. O thou unfailing beacon of light, send thy illuminating ray into the darkness of our ignorance. Show us the right way, and let us not be sidetracked by mere beliefs and dogmas. Help us to experience thee. No matter what our bypath of formal worship, guide us at last into the highway of common soul intuition, which leads to direct perception of thee. Soaring high above narrow lanes of bigotry and lightly over unyielding walls of religious prejudice, lift our souls safely up into thy free skies of bliss. And let us meet together joyfully in thy unwalled temple of universal worship with its dome of the free sky, not structured by man-made, man-interpreted, man-prescribed beliefs and limitations. There shall we raise chants of devotion to thy omnipresence, our hymns made sacred by the simple, direct sincerity of our hearts. Teach us to seek thee by paying careful scientific attention, first to what actually lifts our consciousness, practical techniques of salvation that open our consciousness to experience thee. As we live today in a new age of energy, which has given us physical flight, so let us realize that we have it in us to guide our airplanes of thought high above the dark fogs of mere theological opinions, denunciations, and sectarian squabbling to see the same one sun of truth in turn lighting city after city, country after country, continent after continent. Even so, dost thou bless all equally with thy love. O beacon of cosmic light, send thy guiding ray of divine understanding into the darkness of our ignorance that our soaring consciousness may land safely, incarnation after incarnation, on terrain conducive to continued thoughts of thee. And, O flower of fragrance, send us the scent of love to inspire us always in our search for thee, with longing to climb ever higher into the atmosphere of divine realization. May dreams of thy perfect garden, far above all space and time, but near to us always in our hearts, speed our soul's journey, and quench our thirst in thee. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. It reassures us that just being on the path, following the path, it's all we really need to do. The Bhagavad Gita, and the 22nd verse of the ninth chapter repeats this, whereas it says, those through yoga meditation who reach incessant worship on thee, of me, to these I supply their deficiencies and make permanent their gains. So the scriptures tell us all we have to do is focus on God. But it's also been proven in the experience of here at Ananda Village We've survived against many, many odds. 
of foreclosure, of fires, of lawsuits, of bankruptcy, to prosper. And as Kriyananda points out many times, those who prosper here are those who put God first and don't worry so much about getting their material selves in life together. And those that say, well, I'll find God after I get a little security here on the physical plane, they don't necessarily prosper so much. And there's a whole book, if you'd like to see testimonials of people who have lived these teachings, it's called uh, Loved and Protected, edited by Ashanaya Swami, that there's lots and lots of stories of how the divine has come in to protect and give us what we need when we need it. But I don't really want to go into that too much today because I think many of us, most of us perhaps, have realized that, that finding God is what's important and seeking him is what we should put first in our lives. Many of us have taken one or more vows along these lines. The Taoist discipleship that Swami Kriyananda gave us, it says, you know, long I have walked, Mother, with my thoughts of what I want from life, but too long it has eluded me. It's only when I realize now that without your grace, without your energy, without your guidance, I won't attain what I want. And in the Sevaka Order vows, Guide me and strengthen me, and this is my divine resolution to live my life for God alone. And in the Nayaswami vows, there's a part that says, I offer to thee all the fruits of my labor, all my desires, all my attachments, I surrender to thee alone. So we've, we have this sense of the need to seek first the kingdom of God. What I'd really like to focus on more today is maybe more the how or some of the, the ways that we can deepen a little bit in this seeking of the kingdom of God. And it's important to see that there's lots of different ways that this can be done, that it's not so important uh, what we are doing, but it's a lot of how we are doing it. Because of course, what are we doing? We're, we're meditating, we're serving, we're offering ourselves, we go through ceremonies and worship. We have a number of different things and we understand through our studies why we're doing these things, the anatomy of our spiritual bodies, of how these techniques can help us. And so we practice these techniques. But the techniques alone aren't enough. There's another very, very important, perhaps a more important part of it, and that's the consciousness, the intention, the attitude with which we practice these techniques. And it's both of these are necessary. It's the jnana and the bhakta. So the jnana is that discrimination, that understanding, that wisdom of what we should be doing and why we should be doing it, how it works. But the jnana yogi without bhakta doesn't really progress maybe. Why? Because you need to have that aspiration. You need to have that fire. You need to have that self-offering of trying to go to something higher. Otherwise, it can just be you can take these, this wisdom and reinforce the ego. And likewise, just the bhakta, the devotee, the devotional aspect, they also need discrimination. They need understanding. They need to know where how it is that I can best channel that devotion, that aspiration. 
There's an interesting story that uh, Yogananda said to Saint Mirabai, a great saint in India, was uh, a bhakta. She spent her time chanting, singing the Lord's name, worshiping, doing all these things. But Master said she didn't attain full realization in that lifetime. She had to reincarnate again sometime later as another saint who this time tuned in and spent time in divine communion in samadhi and spent time in reaching for that higher state of consciousness going beyond this physical and was then able to attain liberation. So the jnana and the bhakta are both important in our search. We both, we need both of those as we go forward. But it's, it's not, again, it's not the form. It's not the way that the outer rituals, the outer things we're doing. It's, it's how, how we approach that, how we tune into it, what our consciousness is. And it could look, we can't really judge anyone. We can't really judge anything outside ourselves. We can just look at our own consciousness. You know, where am I with these practices? Why am I doing these practices? And really, really look at those things. You know, if you introspect a little bit, say, okay, well, why am I, why am I meditating? Well, I think it's the right thing to do. I want to be a good yogi. I want success in my life. I want good health. I want peace. I want bliss. I, I, I. Those motivations are still attached to the post of the ego that you're still doing those for some not completely pure aspiration. These are good. By no means should you not do these things, but keep examining and keep taking those steps. Where am I going with this? How far can I go? Where can I get this to? Can I move beyond this, this tie to the ego? And in the, in the ninth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which is where the Gita passage came from this time, Krishna addresses this. He says that, you know, those who follow the Vedic rituals, who perform the sacrifices, and we could substitute in there, who perform the techniques given to us by the guru, who do these scriptural prescriptions, they attain, they attain a higher state. And at times they go, they'll go to the astral realms. They'll find that heaven after death. But what happens? That good karma, those things that runs out and they take rebirth again. And so to break the cycle of rebirth, we really need to purify that thing and we really need to tune in through divine intuition, through divine experience. It's not of the mind, it's not of the ego. We need to experience that sense of the divine. And we're not perfect at it, we practice this. But knowing that that's where we're trying to go can be really helpful. Again, it's not what's happening outwardly. It's not what's happening intellectually. It's not what, even what you're thinking. It's a feeling. What we're trying to do is to really try to open a portal. We're trying to open a door onto the divine. So that grace, the divine, that oneness is always there. We're trying to aspire and lift up, lift up energy in the spine, out through the spiritual eye, until we can commune with that, until we can be in that, that vibration, that oneness with God. And again, it really doesn't matter what you're doing outwardly. There was a story in India 
of the great saint Mira. This is different from Mirabai, it's Mira. And she was also a great bhakta, a great devotee, a great uh, practitioner of bhakti yoga. And she would sing, spend her day singing and communion with the Lord and just chanting the Lord's name and absorbed in his vibration. And everything was blissful in her life except for one thing. She had a husband. And her husband, that wasn't why it wasn't blissful, was it? <laughs> this husband, she was convinced, was actually not a devotee of the divine. But little beknownst, unbeknownst to her, he was actually a higher soul than she was. Just that his worship was all inside, all interior. There was no outward display that let her know that he too was a great devotee of the Lord. And so one night uh, during when they were sleeping, Mira awoke and heard her husband chanting or uh, imploring the Lord, says, come to me, come to me. Reveal thyself in thy full form, that I may be perfect myself in my search for thee. And she says, aha. And he, she woke up the next morning. And when he woke up, she said to him, I have found your secret. And he said, please, don't say anything. Do not say it. Do not speak of it. And she said, I know you are a great devotee of the Lord. I know you have been seeking communion with him and that you have attained great things. He said, I took a vow to the Divine Mother that said, if anyone ever figured out or ever anyone ever knew of my strength as a devotee, that I would leave this body. And so he sat down in the lotus posture and he left his body. So it doesn't necessarily, it's not about what's going on outwardly. And it's often we can get locked into the forms, into the way things are supposed to be and the way we're supposed to have things done. I had some somewhat humorous uh, examples of this. When I was in India recently, we were at uh, Ramana Maharshi's ashram and there's uh, his Samadhi hall and people there. And then next to it, there, there's another hall with more the the murtis, the statues that are related to the Hindu worship, Hindu, the Hindu path. There's oh, lots of different ones, some of which we didn't even know what they were. But we were in a very devotional space, and we had gotten some flowers before we came into the ashram. And so we were walking around in this area, just, you know, just making offerings to the divine in the best way that we knew how, and trying to tune into that divine love that was embodied in these statues. And, as we were leaving the ashram later, this woman came up to us and said, well, I was watching you making your offerings. And I just want you to know that we don't make offerings with our left hands. That's not the right way to make an offering. That it always has to be with the right hand. And you have to walk around this way around the statues. And we, um, I actually didn't say much of anything, but my, uh, my companion, who's a little bit more forthcoming, actually said, you know, I think what happens is that uh, God watches the heart. And we were, we were meant no harm, we meant no disrespect, but we were doing the best we could, and we were offering it with true devotion to the heart. This woman wasn't particularly satisfied with that answer. <laughs> another time, I was at another temple in India, and um, this was a very small space, and I got to sit and meditate there, and I was just meditating. And 
they were about to start the evening chanting of, of mantras, and more and more people came, and it started getting quite crowded, and you know, I kind of got pushed one way and pushed another way, and I was just sitting on the stones. Uh, I'm not necessarily used to, to sitting in that way for a long time, and, but I was, you know, I was just really enjoying the vibration of it. And the pujari, the one who was going to chant these mantras, came in, and he really started yelling at me. He said, what are you doing? This isn't your living room. What do you think you're doing? And it turns out a, a piece of my foot had actually was touching the base of a statue of Nandi, the consort of Shiva. And this is, this is a real no-no. You don't have your feet you know, anywhere near the divine Murti. And I was just, you know, I was like, just so shocked that he was doing this. I didn't go into any explanations. I just said, I just, you know, humbly apologize. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, I tried to move back and just hoped that he could tune into the fact that I was trying to tune into the divine flow there. And, you know, he went on with the ceremony and, you know, he didn't, he didn't like forcibly remove me from the temple. So <laughs> I think it was okay. But anyway, you can get, you can get locked into these forms. But what's really important is, um, which I want to talk about a little bit more, is, is summed up in the, the Sanskrit term, the Indian term, bhav. B-H-A-V is a transliteration, the bhav. It's our way that we relate to the divine and how we see ourselves in relation to the divine. And there are lots of different bhavs. It can be, it can change, but there's sort of a, it's a, a feeling, a mood, a way of, of relating that can relate to a specific portal into the divine, a specific way of being, be it a, a specific deity, perhaps, in a religion, or one of the masters, or one of these things. But this, tuning into what, you know, how this bhav is and how I'm relating to a specific bhav can be important because if we can really go in depth into a specific bhav, it can really help us. So think of our masters. They have a different bhav. They're all realized masters, but they are slightly different in the way that they've manifested in the way we can tune in. Sri Yukteswar, jnana yoga, centered in spine, wisdom, truth. And, you know, Master, uh, Kriyananda said, Master could tune into that sometimes. He could manifest that jnana bhav, that wisdom bhav, and you just be this fountain of, of, of information, of wisdom. But Master Yogananda was more of a prem avatar, more the bhav of divine love. And that was what he tuned into most. It's a way we can often tune into him, that love he had for the Divine Mother, that love he has for all of us. And Lahiri Mahashaya, he's the yoga avatar. His bhav was one of just, of Raja Yoga. Do Kriya Yoga, any problem? Kriya Yoga, meditate. You know, so there's that bhav. And you can tune into these in different ways. And this is not just the masters, this also came home to me, the different depths of the bhav in my experience of the Eucharist in the Christian church. So I grew up in a Presbyterian church, a Protestant church, and you know we didn't have communion all the time. When we did have communion, there was this plate of little squares of bread that were all chopped up, little things, and had some grape juice, and people would file by, and it had, you know, it had, I don't think it was very tuned in to the bhav of approaching Christ through the blood and, and body of Christ. 
I mean, I didn't relate to it at all as a kid. I was just like, what is this? Later on, after I got married, I was uh, introduced more to the Catholic presentation of the Eucharist, and we would went to various services in Spain, and I would watch the people coming up, and there I could see, wow, okay, there's something in this ceremony. You could see, especially, you know, I have to say it was especially the, the uh, little old widows dressed in black who probably went to mass every day. You could watch them come up, and you could see they had entered into that bow, that relation to Christ through this ceremony, through the blood, through the, through the bread, the body and blood of Christ. But I really didn't appreciate that ceremony until I was in India. And I actually had the good fortune, we had the good fortune of going to see Mother Teresa. She was still on the body in Calcutta. We went to an evening Vesper ceremony at one of her her ashrams, one of her places in Calcutta. And watching her offer the Eucharist and do the ceremony, it just, it was amazing. You could, you could just feel that bhav, that divine love, just perfected, just, you know, she didn't say anything. It was just the vibration emanating from her and her, her gestures, her little, you know, there was, there was even only slight movements. But there you could appreciate, okay, that's the bhav of how to approach Jesus through this, this ceremony. So I also had a, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about one experience I had deepening my appreciation of this, what it takes to tune in to, to a certain bhav. And as again, I've talked about this some, but I had the good fortune to be in India for some weeks uh, earlier this spring. And I was in many places that were dedicated to Lord Shiva. Now Shiva is one of the main deities in the Hindu pantheon. There's Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, Shiva, the destroyer. But there are millions and millions of people who for many, many, many centuries have been worshiping the divine through this form of Shiva. It has many different forms, many different aspects, many different ways of being, and I knew something about Shiva, because, you know, we have Shivaratri here, and we tell nice stories, and we have statues, and we have pictures, but it, it was all kind of on this realm of the, the jnana, the intellectual, of tuning in, of trying to tune in a little bit and, and understand these symbols. And going to India, I was surrounded by the worship of Shiva, and so I said, okay, you know, I'm here usually I'm not so much of a, you know, I'm not trying to tune into this, but here I really felt drawn to try to tune into that bhav of the worship of the divine and this form of Shiva. So it started out, we'd go to some temples and, you know, what would happen first? The intellectual catalog started kicking. Okay, so that's the lingam, and that means that that's a manifestation of the unmanifest, and there could be a light here, and this could come, and that's Parvati, and she's the consort of this, and this works, but, you know, all in the mind of, of how to relate to these symbols. And, you know, I would try. I would try to feel, but, you know, I didn't necessarily get very far that way. But, you know, I'd keep going and keep trying to understand and trying to keep opening the heart. And it, uh, later on in the trip, we went to visit uh, this temple under construction by Mahananda Siddha Yoga, who's this yogi, who's this 94-year-old who was commissioned by Shiva himself to build this temple, and he's building this massive temple. And it's, it's, 
it's beyond rational understanding anything that goes on there. So that helped. But uh, we walked around in there, and there was this, you know, nobody was there. The temple was under construction, and we just kind of showed up. We just kind of were wandering around. And there was this huge statue of Shiva, a black carved stone Shiva, that there was just something there that, you know, I went up to it, I did a full prostration to it, and my heart opened. I felt, okay, this is Shiva's energy. I can feel this now. And Shiva has many aspects. You know, it can be the destroyer of illusion. It's this dance, you know, the dance of destruction. But it can also be that the, the all-compassionate one that has compassion for every devotee. And so I really felt that energy coming. And then we continued. We, the next part of the journey, we were in Varanasi. Now, Varanasi is the center of Shiva worship. It's been a center for thousands of years. And everything about this city is, is about Shiva. And it's generally worshiped through the lingam. This a lingam is just this small, rounded pillar which you know, has various symbolisms and things, but it's not much less the statue, the form of Shiva, but these Shiva lingams. And there are Shiva lingams everywhere. You cannot take two steps without seeing a Shiva lingam. And we were there trying to energize this spot on the Ghat where we're hoping to build a shrine to our masters, which is a project that is going forward. But part of this place where we were, there was a Shiva lingam there. And so every morning we would go down and we'd set up the master to our altars and we'd chant and we'd meditate. But we also did puja. We'd bring flowers and in our manner, without consulting the book of how you do puja, we would, you know, we would offer flowers. We'd just try to get into that devotional energy, that, that opening the door to that energy of Shiva. And gradually through the week, it just you know, it just felt more and more expansive to the point where we'd be walking through the streets and you'd see a Shiva Lingam and, you know, turn off the catalog. Okay, this means this, this means this. It was, yeah, I can feel energy coming from that. I can feel this is a, an entryway into the divine, all the worship that's gone into that. But then, after Varanasi, I managed to eke out another couple of weeks and I decided to head for the Himalayas. And so up in the Himalayas in Uttarakhand is another area that's very, very dedicated to Shiva and has been, there have been meditations to Shiva, temples to Shiva. It's where the Pandavas went, uh, the characters of the Mahabharata, where they went to find Shiva to worship him before the Mahabharata. Anyway, very strong energy. It's also the Himalayas. And one of the aspects of Shiva is the, the ascetic yogi meditating in the icy reaches of the high Himalaya. And this was something that I could, I felt really in tune with, I could really relate to. So I spent a, you know, a number of times trekking and walking and, you know, just gradually, you know, I was chanting to Shiva, I was doing Om Namah Shivaya as I'm walking, just really getting into this. And at one temple in particular, which was called Kalapeshwar, which was one of the five temples supposedly built by the Pandavas, so it's, you know, 2,500, 2,700 years ago, um, where Shiva's worshiped just as his hair. There's this, just a rock is the main thing, and there's this, it looks like the waving hair of Shiva. And it's just a, a sort of a, de a depression in the cliff is this temple, and then there's this little sanctum sanctorum. It's just a little stone room, which may be five feet high, five feet wide, eight feet long. 
And I got there, there was nobody there. So I was able to go inside, I was able to meditate in this room. And I was just, you know, feeling the bob and tuning in. And at that point, I had another very, very profound experience of this through the portal of Shiva. And it was visualizing, you know, this, this image came in meditation of a huge Shiva standing on top of the mountains and with his trident piercing my heart and energizing a column of the Kundalini or this column of fire up my spine. And it was, you know, I had never had that before. I never, when I think about Shiva, I'd never had that. And so something was happening. And then after that, I was just walking through the, along the river near the temple there. And there's a, in whispers, there's a, there's a, a saying in there that, uh, you know, when, I, let me see your temples everywhere. Well, I was so in this Bhava Shiva, I just started seeing like there was, I'd say, wow, that's an old temple, because here's a Shiva Lingam, and is this, and then I'd look at it, well, actually, it's probably just a terrace that's been abandoned from a field, but you know, to me, I was tuning in, and then at one point, as I was walking down the river, there's this cliff face that from far away, I could have sworn, wow, that's a profile carving of the Lord Shiva, and as I walked up to it, I realized, well, actually, it's just a rock face, but you know, I was in that bhav, seeing God everywhere, being in that reminding. And one last experience that I had was after I went to Joshimat, which is one of the main temples established by the Adi, the first Shankaracharya, when he organized the Swami order. So it's up in Joshimat. And again, this was kind of pre-season, so nobody was there. So I went into this meditation hall and was able to just sit in meditation. And there was this giant Shiva Lingam there, which was all crystal. It was, it was at least this high, like this one giant crystal. And so I just sat there meditating and, okay, you know, Shiva Lingam, I'm tuning in. And again, this profound image came to me that the, the Lingam is really the Atman, it's the soul, it's that interior soul and that effulgence, that divine light coming from that interior soul is what's burning away all the dross of our personalities, of all the dross of our attachments. And it was again this, you know, wow, thank you, Shiva. So I tell you these things not because I've become a devotee of Shiva. It's, it's much harder to stay in that bhav back in Ananda village. And here it's much easier to tune into the bhav of our masters, of Yogananda. But I have to say, I do have a completely new relationship with the statue of Shiva that's in Kailash cluster that I go by every day. Now, I bow before I just, you know, Shiva. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's these reminders. And I think it's important for all of us to, and for myself, that when you're, you know, pick, pick a relationship, pick a divine pathway, pick a bhav that you want to tune into, and then work with it really work with, you know, there's the jnana, the intellectual understanding, but then there's also that devotional aspect and go beyond either of those into that intuitive divine flow to really tune in and, and open that portal. And again, in the ninth chapter in the Bhagavad Gita, it says those who have, who are with deep sincerity are worshiping, they speedily make progress on the spiritual path and know this for certain, Arjuna, my devotees are never lost. No effort 
is ever lost. Streams burn.